Choose him to stand uh, to stand between you and us and that we would hear what you have to say to us today. Again, we thank you for this privilege. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord bless. Thank you. It's been a, uh, a long time since I've been at Northwood and just uh, blessed to be here again this morning. And really blessed that Kitchy has a dynamic tie with with you all now through uh, the marriage yesterday. Yesterday we um, we celebrated a bride from Northwoods. This morning we'd like to celebrate the bride of Northwoods and talk about this congregation as being the expression of the bride of Jesus Christ in this local community. Now, I know there's quite a few of you that are not from Northwood, so um, you'll just have to listen in. But I'm going to talk to the congregation here primarily because I believe that this is one of the most important concepts that we as Christians can, can grasp is how important your body of believers is, this brotherhood. Um, so we'd like to talk about the critical importance of the, the Bride of Christ here at Northwood. In First um, Corinthians chapter 16, verse 15, it talks about a family that had an addiction. They, they were addicted in such a way that, and the way I understand addiction is, you can't get along very long without another fix, uh, another smoke, Another marijuana, another heroin or something. If you're addicted to it, you, you just can't go very long until you've got to have another one. Well, this family was addicted. And, uh, they were addicted to the ministry of the saints. They couldn't go very long without somehow getting involved in the ministry of the saints. Uh, what a wonderful addiction this particular family had. That's an addiction that I hope that we all can get addicted to, to some degree or other. Because God has designed the local church to be that place where a group of Christians are going to regularly meet in the name of Christ and are going to affirm and oversee each other's membership in the, the body of Christ, in the kingdom of Christ. And they're going to do that through preaching, teaching, and interaction, fellowship together. I'd like to have you take your Bibles this morning and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 18. And we can just kind of keep your finger in that particular um, part of your Bible or your smartphone, whatever you're using, um, to, to highlight verse 18. So, um, let's all stand together and let's read this scripture and highlight it. We'll read through it twice so that we be sure to catch it. And uh, I'll be reading from the King James, and so if you have something else, uh, you'll have to just kind of go along with us here. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 18. Say it together. But now hath God set the members, every one of them, in the body as it hath pleased Him. Once more. 
But now hath God set the members, every one of them, in the body, as it hath pleased Him. Alright, you may be seated. Interesting that that verse, God could have said it quite simply. He could have said, but God, now God has set the members as it hath pleased Him. But He emphasizes something with a couple of phrases in there. He says, He's set the members, every one of them. Every one of them. Each particular person. He said, He set the members, every one of them, in the body as it hath pleased Him. This was God's work. This was God's work. You know, you might assume like it's easy to assume that uh, the makeup of, of your church is uh, made up of the membership of people who moved from a church that was having problems over here and they ended up here or they got married to somebody in this church so that's why they're here or, you know, whatever the circumstances were, we, we tend to believe that we're here as kind of a hodgepodge of people that just kind of came in from different places at different times and some of us have been here forever and some of us have just gotten here a, a year or so ago. But God says in His Word that He set the members of the body, every one of them, as it has pleased Him. He was actively involved in whatever took place to bring you to be a part of this membership, of this church. Chester and Timnus in their book, Total Church, said this, that the centrality of the church means the centrality of the congregation or it means nothing. Commitment to the church is easy while the church is an abstract universal reality, but the New Testament assumes commitment to the real people in real churches with all their faults and foibles. It's easy to love the church in abstract or to love people short term, but we're called to love people as we share our lives with them. This is the pathway to Christian growth and holiness. Commitment to the people of God is expressed through commitment to specific congregations. End of quote. You know, the importance of the church really doesn't mean anything if it doesn't involve a local congregation. It's easy, as, as Timnus was saying, to love people short term or to love them theologically but to love them in practical ways, we are called to connect with brothers and sisters in such a deep way that it actually takes away our independence. We are now interdependent within the, the brotherhood. And this is how we grow in, in uh, holiness. One frustrated saint wrote, To dwell with saints above, well, that will sure be glory. To dwell with all the saints I know, well, that's a different story. You can sense his frustration at the local level. Uh, he was looking forward to heaven, but he was struggling where he was at. But here's where it's at. Heaven really is obscure if I can't get along with the people that are going to inhabit it while they're down here. This is the workshop. We talked about the workshop of marriage yesterday, but we're talking about another workshop that God uses in the local church to prepare us for eternity. And He's going to do it 
as you sit together, as you work together, as you argue about things, as you discuss things, and become one as a body of believers. It's interesting, again, in 1 Corinthians, it says, Seek that ye may excel to the edifying of the church. Seek that ye may excel to the edifying of the church. Now, if God were to write your report card, send it home with you to your mommy and daddy, how are you doing in this particular course? How are you excelling to the, to the edification of the church? Would you get an A on your report card? A B minus? A C? What would God's grade be on your report card in relation to edifying the body of Christ? We are to seek to excel. We are to get an A or an A plus, 100%. Unfortunately, the theology of much of evangelical Protestantism today has weakened and undermined the doctrine of the local church. Um, grace alone, faith only, subtly omits the importance of human relationships. It's all this way. And the relationships within the body of Christ are at best um, um, set aside and sometimes completely ignored. It's interesting that some of the earlier church leaders had a, a significantly different view of how important your fellowship and your brotherhood is. Dionysus of Alexandria in North Africa in those early years said this, and I quote, It would have been but dutiful to have suffered any kind of ill so as to avoid rending the church of God. And catch this. He says, A martyrdom endured for the sake of preventing a division of the church would have been just as glorious as one endured for refusing to worship idols. End of quote. Cyprian took it maybe a little farther when he said, Outside the church, there is no salvation. Now, he was pretty strong in the building up of the Catholic Church, so we may question a little bit of the strength of his statement there. But the namesake for which our denomination has been named said this, Menno Simons said, There is nothing upon earth which my heart loves more than it does the church. Kevin DeYoung wrote in his book, uh, Just Do Something, just a small book, good one to read sometime if you have the opportunity. He says, and again I quote, My fear is that of all the choices people face today, the one they rarely consider is, how can I serve most effectively and faithfully in the local church? He goes on to say, I wonder if the abundance of opportunities to explore today is doing less to help make well-rounded disciples and more to help Christians avoid long-term responsibility and have less long-term impact. End of quote. Now, I'd like to turn to Ephesians chapter 4 and just get a sense of what Paul says here to the church at Ephesians. And I'd like to highlight um, and use 
your title as a congregation rather than some of the words that he uses just to, to make it more personal, make it more real for us as a, as a congregation. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11, Paul is talking about what, what Christ gave, what God gives to the local church. He says, and it was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare Northwood's Mennonite church for works of service. That's why he gave them to you, to prepare them for works of service so that Northwood Mennonite Church may be built up until Northwood Mennonite Church reaches unity in the faith and, and in the knowledge of the Son of God and becomes mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then Northwood Mennonite Church will no longer be infants tossed back and forth in the, by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their own deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, Northwood Mennonite Church will in all things grow up unto him, into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. That's God's intention. For the International Catholic Universal Church. But he wants to work it out in its details in a local Northwood Mennonite Church. That's an expression in this community of the Universal Church. What the, universal ch- or what the community sees of the Universal Church will probably only be seen through the local church. That's why it's so important that we are able to, to fulfill what Paul is saying here. So who chooses the, the team members of our local church? We just quoted that scripture a little bit ago. But now hath God set the members, every one of them, in the body as it has pleased Him. The New International Version says it very similarly. It says, uh, but in fact God has arranged the parts of the body, every one of them, just as He wanted them to be. My family grew up at Sharon Mennonite Bible Institute and from a very young age um, they began to play volleyball with the students that uh, came and the students were very gracious to allow them to start playing when they were really too young to play but uh, they would help them and, and um, as they grew up in that environment they, uh, they became quite proficient at uh, volleyball. It was fun to watch them as a dad um, and but one of the things that um, that my boys particularly did not enjoy was the volleyball tournaments that would take place usually once a term every six weeks they'd have another tournament and so because they were really quite good at volleyball they'd always be put on a team with some who were not so very good and, um, you know, the, the ball would bounce off the top of their head and, and, uh, boys were diving behind these, uh, these less capable players to try to get that ball back up on, uh, in the air before it hit the floor. And, you know, swinging a miss took a new dimension beyond softball, uh, in, in those games. And 
So they were, they'd come back from those games just frustrated um, because it, often they would lose. Their sisters were good setters, and they were usually in the teams that were kind of in the middle. Some of the teams had really good players and really poor players, and then the others were just kind of in the middle. They all had uh, you know fairly decent players, but nothing real, no stars necessarily. And they would always win. And uh, the boys just could hardly handle this. And uh, I'd try to encourage them, no, it's okay, you know, you're just learning. You're learning how to play the game better with those players than if you had a bunch of good players because you've got to dive back there and smash your head against the wall or whatever, <laughs> you know, trying to keep this thing going. And uh, it never convinced them. Uh, because the other players were not as efficient. Brothers and sisters, God will place some team members in your church that aren't as efficient either. They, they, they're struggling in some areas of their lives. Maybe it's in their marriage. Maybe it's in their uh, their family relationships. Maybe it's in their own understanding of their salvation. Maybe they're struggling. And, and the ball kind of bounces off of their heads as your team is playing. But God placed every one of them there. And He wants that team to succeed. Your team to succeed. In church life, we fantasize about this perfect church team as such, but seldom realize that we're the ones to make it happen. We're the ones that are called to make it happen. God set the members, every one of them in the body, as it hath pleased Him. And David says, or maybe it was Asaph in um, Psalm 84, it says, For a day in thy courts is better than a thousand. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. Rather be a day with God's people than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. You know, the, the local church is what the New Testament really focuses on. If you take the word ekklesia, which is the word in the Greek for church, and you count how many times it's used, it's 115 times that that word comes up in the, in the Greek New Testament. Of those 115 times, five times it's referring to the church of the Old Testament, really referring to Israel. So there's 110 more times that it's used, and of those 110, another five times, it's, it's or actually 15 times, it's probably quite clear that it's talking about the universal church. Everyone that's involved in the, the kingdom of Christ and, and the, the universal church. Five more times, it's quite certain that it's referring to both the universal and local church. I mean, you could at least apply it in both directions. But 80 or 90 times out of 115, it's talking about local churches. 83% of the times that the word ecclesia comes up, it's talking about local settings. I think that's significant. Sometimes we want to just identify with the international universal church, but God is focusing primarily on our relationship in the local church. 83% of the time, 
it's referring to that. Just a few examples. In Matthew chapter 18, verse 17, it says, If you neglect to hear them, then tell it to the church in the whole area of church discipline. It's not talking about getting on CNN and letting everybody in the, in the universal church know about what's going on. No, it's talking about the local church. Um, in Acts chapter 8, it says there's a great persecution against the church that was at Jerusalem. It's a local setting. Jerusalem. Acts chapter 14, verse 28, it says, And when they had ordained them elders in every church. Again, as they went out, it was in all those different local churches that they were ordaining the elders. First Corinthians chapter 1. Unto the church of God that's at Corinth. And then you have the, another one at Ephesus and Thessalonica and so forth. Many examples of the 90 different times throughout the Scripture that is focusing on the local church. Today it's Northwood Mennonite Church that we're talking about. David Needham in his book um, on, on salvation says, Functioning first generation Christians knew that the individual Christian was not an isolated pilgrim, but part of a body which could not function apart from love. Now, how does God test your love for Him, this vertical relationship? How does He, how does he test that? I know He does it in many different ways. For me, it was through numbers of crises that came along. One of the biggest, the first big one was when we, we had a, um, a daughter that began seizing at uh, six months old. And in the next two years, Kayla seized somewhere around 120 different times, and many of those were grand mal seizures. We did everything we possibly could do to try to stop that. Took uh, four, four of the five different kinds of medication that were recommended. We had prayer times in our, with the student body, with our church back at home. We had prayer times with our family, our extended family, seeking is there something that, that, that's a part of our lives that's causing this. And I'm crying out to God as a father saying, God, why can't you heal my daughter? Why can't I have a healthy daughter when there's so many others out here that have children and they don't like them, they don't love them, and they don't take care for them. I want to care for my daughter, but you're not, you're not healing her. You know, some, it just felt like some of those prayers just went past God's blank look on his face. It, it, like he wasn't listening. And I remember when she, on her, her last flight, she had three different emergency flights to hospitals from wherever we were at at that particular point and on that last flight, as the helicopter was lifting off the the pad, I was standing there watching that helicopter disappear into the dark night. My faith was just hanging inches off the macadam that I was standing on. I, God, why? Again, the third time that she has to be taken and she's in a coma and... and I felt like God was saying, well, Val, what are you going to do? You're going to quit? You're going to give up? Now, I'm an administrator in an SMBI and I'm, I can't give up. <laughs> but I'm hurting. I can't understand. But I felt like God was saying, 
will you give up? And I said, no, Lord, I'm not going to give up. I don't understand, but I'm going to continue on. I want to, I want to be faithful, even if I don't understand. A few years later, that was tested again, as my wife had heart problems. And then two years after that, passed away. 2012, was tested again as our house burned. We lost everything in the house. What God was saying through those incidents to me was, will you remain faithful to your bridegroom no matter what happens? And I'm still learning how to say yes to that. When God seems to look blindly past your impassioned pleas, desperate pleas, God was stretching, drawing us to more faith. Faith when it's hard. And we say, I'm not going to leave. I'm not going to quit. I trust your goodness even if I can't understand it. I'm going to remain faithful to my groom. Another dimension to that that God has brought to my awareness is that God not only wants me to love his son, the bridegroom, he wants me to love his bride as well. He wants me to show the same kind of dedication to the bride as I do to the bridegroom because they're going to be one one day throughout all eternity. And what am I learning about my commitment to the, the bride herself who is going to be with the bridegroom throughout all of eternity? And that local expression is where I plug in to that bride. And so when church circumstances become so complicated and so hard and the people are hurting and people are saying things and, and, and things are rough. What do you, how long will I stay committed? If I'm going to stay committed to the Lord Jesus Christ, will I also stay committed to His bride? Or is there a deep separation between these two? Am I sincere when I envision laying down my life for an unreached people group in some other part of the world, but I'm not willing to lay down my life for my local church. I'm willing to lay down my connection with my family and, and all the birthdays and reunions and so forth that take place in the United States of America while I'm over in Thailand. I can't go to them. But I'm willing to lay them down in order to reach that group over there. And I work and work, try to learn language and try to understand their culture and try to get the right kind of wording and, and illustrations so that they can understand the concepts of salvation in that foreign country. I'm, and I, I, I ask my people back at home to pray for this group of people. Pray for me as I'm there. I invest everything to try to win that group of people, but then when I come back to my local church, am I willing to have the same kind of dedication 
to learn how to communicate and how to love and how to care and to pray for them in the same way that I'm doing over there. God wonders how much do we love His bride, the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, Paul had a tremendous love for the the church. In fact, sometimes it's just hard for me to understand how Paul could be so gracious and so loving as he's speaking to some of these churches, especially the church at first in, in Corinthians. Uh, first Corinthians, he says this in uh, verses 4 through 9. Paul's talking to the, to a, a church, a local group. He says, I always thank God for you. Now wait a minute, Paul. Always? What about when you heard about this man who was with his father's wife? Do you thank God? That's what he said. I always thank God for you because of His grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in Him you have been enriched in every way. Okay, Paul, I guess you're right. Uh, sure got a lot of problems in Corinth. Uh, what, you know, how does this all relate? He goes on. Because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you, therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will keep you strong to the end and you will be blameless on the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. God who has called you into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, is faithful. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, Paul. You've got Judaizers in that group that are trying to get everybody to be Jews and follow the Jewish commands. And so there's a, a division there. You've got spiritual midgets in that group that are still drinking milk when they should be eating meat. You've got one guy who's suing at the law, another guy in the congregation, and you've got this incestuous relationship. You've got people that are struggling with understanding the gifts. Paul, you've got carnality hanging from the tree of Corinth church like icicles in the wintertime in Wisconsin. And you can say that about them? You don't like anything? We see God's grace through you. Was Paul able to see something that most of us can't see? Or not very well at least? Who in our church will love Northwoods Mennonite Church like Paul loved this Corinthian church? The whole New Testament has that message of love one another. It's a dozen times that it's spoken from John through Second uh, John. Love one another. Love one another. Love one another. You know, if I can't get excited about my local church, then my excitement about some mystical universal church is pharisaical. It really is. I, I'll challenged by the comment that Dietrich Bonhoeffer made. He says, He who loves his dreams of church more than the Christian church itself becomes a destroyer of that church. Did you get that? He who loves his dreams of a church more than the Christian church itself becomes a destroyer of the church. Now, just to make that practical, um, men, how would you feel if your wife loves her her um, her concept of what a husband should be and could be 
but not really loves you. Okay? Uh, you're, you're not there. And so she loves this view that she has, but not the reality that she has. Or she respects the view that she has, but she doesn't respect the reality that she has. Make you feel good? Or wives. Uh, if your husband loves what he thinks a wife should be, but doesn't really love you because you're not quite there, you're always crippled by the imagination of what it should be. And you're not able to do the, the practical loving of your wife the way that you're supposed to because you're always loving this envisioned thing. That's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer is saying. If you are loving this, this uh, hypothetical situation, this uh, universal situation, but you're not loving locally, then you're loving your your dreams about a church more than you are loving the church. God has placed in your congregation a variety of perspectives on almost every issue that comes up. It's so easy to react to the person who has a contrasting perspective to my perspective. I'm just convinced that for every more traditional person who loves the traditional songs in the congregation, he's probably going to put some in that love the more contemporary songs. Now, when I'm saying contemporary, I'm not talking about CMC type music. I'm just talking about songs that have been written within the last 15 years. So there's going to be a, there's going to be a contrast there. For every prophet he puts in this congregation, he's probably going to put in a mercy, just to balance them out. Uh, and for every elderly person, he's going to bring some young people in and their perspective. For every Jew, he'll bring a Gentile. Uh, for every male, he'll bring a, a, a female. For every optimist, he'll probably bring a pessimist, uh, just to keep things where they need to be in the congregation. For every Extrovert, he'll bring an introvert. For every zealot, he'll probably bring a tax collector. For every premillennialist, he'll probably bring an amillennialist. Now, that one gets a little bit scary uh, sometimes. But Why? Because this is the workshop for us to learn how to love God's people even if we don't see eye to eye with them at every point. To jump and run is to move away from God's workshop. But now hath God set the members, every one of them, in the body as it hath pleased Him. It's like um, Brother Richard Bean said recently, a church where everyone agrees on everything is probably an unbalanced church. A number of years ago, um, our pastor Keith Neen illustrated some of this in a way that I'd like to illustrate this morning. Also, it's so easy for us to cut off the people who come from a different perspective in our local congregations. And so, we either just go silent or we you know, have this, uh, this loud discussion, upset and angry and so forth. And we, we really need to learn how do we love each other even with opposite perspectives because 
Jesus Christ is the hub of this church. I'm confident of that. That's what you want. That's what your leaders want, that he is the hub. He's the, the, um, the centerpiece of what's happening here. And so, like in a, a bike tire, for every spoke that's on this side, you have to have one on the other side to keep it balanced. And I understand that bike racers make very certain that everything is totally in tune. And I, you know, I don't know the, the science behind all that, but if they don't have these in tune, the bike tire begins to have a, a warped and a wobble to it, and that's going to hinder their, their, their speed and their, their progress. And so you need to have every one of those. But what we tend to do is that for all these Optimists on that side, we don't need them. Um, we'll just cut them off. And we, we don't need all the, those ladies always have such an emotional response to everything, so we really can't listen to the ladies. Uh, they're, they're, you know, they've got that sixth sense that none of us men can understand anyway. Uh, and so we, we don't really need them. Uh, these zealots, if they would just tone down a little bit, we could get along much better uh, if we didn't have them there. And, you know, those young people, they're just so modern and they just have all these ideas about uh, how, how a church should be run and they really don't know that much about it and they're inexperienced if they would just listen to us. And we go on and we keep cutting off people as, as we get new issues. And before long, this particular tire is not going to be around anymore. It's going to wobble and it's going to go in the ditch. And that's what's happening to so many of our churches. We, we lose the, the impact that God intended for our churches to have because we reject those who don't have the same perspective. God intended that we sit together like they did in Acts chapter 15. And, and if you read through that story, it's an interesting, it's a wonderful story. I'm glad Acts 15 is in the Bible. Because if Acts 15 wasn't in the Bible, Kitchi wouldn't have any hope. Acts 15 tells us that they they talked about they discussed this and it got heated. Uh, you know there was some strong opinions that were being talked about there, and then they listened to each other and they talked and they talked, and finally, as they talked, as they shared, as they're committed to staying together and working on this, they were able to come to a conclusion that not only brought joy there, but as they took it out to the other churches, it brought joy there as well. That's what we're called to do. That's what this community wants to see at Northwood. They want to see that here's people who differ in, on certain things, but they love each other so much that they illustrate what heaven's all about as they work through the challenges and the struggles, the different opinions and so forth that are here because we're not going to leave. We're not going to quit. Our relationship with Jesus Christ, we're not going to quit that, and we're not going to quit our relationship with His bride as well. So important that we capture what Andrew Farmer said in his book. He said, the church is not some cosmic concept, some heavenly fraternity that we sometimes kind of feel around us. It's the people of God set apart for His purposes. When it comes to the church, Christians are not and can never be believers, but not belongers. 
The church universal, the bride of Christ, expresses itself at a level of daily life in individual local congregations. From the very beginning, Scripture has directed every member of the universal church to be an active participant in a local church. This local community of faith includes not only dear old Pastor Bob and Wanda, the angelic voice worshiper, but Ed, the obnoxious zealot, and Betty, the chronic whiner, as well. So who's going to lead the community of both the grotesque and the glorious? The ones that can't hit the volleyball and the ones that know how to spike incredibly. Who's going to lead the team? To be a community of light from which the light of Christ will emanate, we need to be intentional in our relationships. To love the unlovely, to forgive the unforgivable, to embrace the repulsive, to include the awkward, to accept the weird. It is in this context that these sinners are transformed into disciples who obey everything that King Jesus has commanded. So in closing this morning, I'd like to turn to Colossians chapter 3. You don't need to turn there yourself. I'll just read it. Colossians chapter 3 instructs us that whenever you come together as a congregation here at Northwood Mennonite Church, you are to dress up. I'm not talking necessarily about outward dressing, although that's a good idea too. But here it says we are to dress up. It tells us what kind of clothes we're supposed to put on when you come together every Sunday morning. Did you realize that? In Colossians chapter 3, it says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and duly beloved, clothe yourselves. Okay? Dress up. Put these clothes on. Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive Whatever grievances you may have against one another, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. For us men, that could maybe be um, uh, paraphrased to say, put on the underclothing of compassion, put on the shirt of kindness, put on the pants of humility, put on the socks of gentleness and patience, put on the shoes of forbearance and forgiveness, And then put your overcoat on of love. And now you're ready to go to church. Don't go to church without being clothed properly. Because that's where you express your love for the Lord and for His people. It's in the body of Christ. It's in the brotherhood. Let the world see that... What John says, if anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And he has given unto us the command, whosoever loves God must also love his brother. That the community might say, behold, how they love one another. It's a little full this morning, so maybe we won't kneel, but let's just bow our heads in a word of prayer as we reflect. Lord, we thank you that you've pulled together a group of people and you've placed them here in the Northwood community. And you are wanting to demonstrate to this community through the church here at Northwood 
the very powerful and dynamic love that holds your people, first of all, to the Lord Jesus Christ and then to each other. First of all, to the bridegroom and then to the bride. So, Lord, I pray that you continue to grow them in the workshop of your love where you teach us how to love one another and to be able to work through the challenges of relationship that uh, come our way and see them as, as stepping stones in our own personal growth as individuals in the body of Christ here at, at Northwood. So Lord, thank you for your design. We're love, we love you and we love your, your work through the church. Teach us how to be a giver and a servant to that work. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.